Thank you, James. Well, again, good morning. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. As you notice on the screen, we're starting a brand new series. Uh, we're going to be studying the letter to the Ephesians. It's called The Gospel and How It Shapes Us. And today is going to be an introduction, so there may not be that uh, heart-pounding moment of application today, but you're going to get a great overview of the book of Ephesians, and we're going to tackle a few different things. But before we get into that, 35 years ago, a TV show called Seinfeld aired its first episode. It was not a show for everyone as its characters were kind of the love-to-hate-them type of characters, except for one. His name was Kramer, and he was liked by everyone who watched the show. He was the odd, goofy, likable, and live-life-for-the-simple-enjoyment type of person. And in one episode, Kramer is attempting to shorten his morning routine and how long it takes him to get ready. And after discovering from his neighbor, Jerry, that an hour long to take a shower is not a normal thing, he struggles to get his routine down under 30 minutes until he finally embraces his love for the hot shower that he likes to take, and he decides to just stay in there all day. He equips himself in the shower with a waterproof phone and a television, and then he opts to install a garbage disposal in his bathtub so he can prepare his meals there as well. Yeah, I know. The episode ends with Kramer serving a meal to his friends only to reveal to them while they were, while they were eating, and I quote, I prepared it as I bathed. This prompts them to wretch, and two of them are recovering germaphobes. It is a horrible idea to spend all day in the shower. It is a horrible idea to eat, prepare meals in the shower. And while those ideas are terrible, there is sometimes that epiphany moment in the shower that you have a great idea. Those are actually called shower thoughts. They have a term. And a shower thought is defined as a minor epiphany that occurs while showering or going about some other mundane task like driving. You've had them, you may just not realize it. Things like, I have to write that down, it's that thing at the grocery store that I keep forgetting, and you don't remember it until you're in a place like the shower where you can't write it down. And then after you leave the shower, you don't remember it. Or maybe you remember this perfect gift idea for your anniversary, or you actually remember the date of your anniversary while you're driving, and you can't write it down. And it's those moments where those times of enlightenment are great, but those types of things torture us because we can't do anything about that information. We have no ability to write it down if we're driving or we're in the shower. So having moments of enlightenment are great, but we can't remember them after the fact. And that's why it's important to write things down. And then it's important to read what is written down. And then it's important to do something with the information that we wrote down. We can't just leave it written there. And where I'm going with this is the Christian walk is the same way. We have these great moments of declaring that Jesus is important to us. Oh God, you saved my soul. And we declare it loudly. But then too quickly we forget that truth. 
We may even write it down in the pages of our Bible or in a journal or in a really intense Bible study and we have all of these notes that we were able to write down, but then it stays on the page and it never penetrates our hearts. And this is part of the reason why I believe for us at Calvary and as individuals, a study in Ephesians is exactly what we need. Because it's easy to forget what we say we are committed to. It's easy to be distracted by the world around us or content with where we are. The church in Ephesus wasn't being driven by the depth of God's grace like they should. And it affected them as individuals, as a church, and then the impact that they were designed by God to have on the world around them. And so we are going to be studying Ephesians until about June, which is great because we should be looking towards that warm weather with below zero temperatures outside. And so today, we introduce Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at a few verses scattered throughout the book, but we're going to take more of an aerial view today of the book and look at the author and the themes, etc. So if you are wondering where the book of Ephesians is, it is the 10th book of the New Testament, and so it's nearer the back of your Bible. And if you want to open up, we're going to read, like I said, a few verses here and there today, but I want to start with verses 1 and 2. That'll take care of our introduction today. So verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, the very first thing that you see, the very first word that you see in verse 1 identifies the author. It says, Paul. Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He was a man who was passionate at his core. And his passion was once used to murder, to persecute Christians. Until the Lord got a hold of his life, transformed him, and redirected the passion that he had inside of him to a God-honoring passion where he would write scripture. The Lord spoke to him. He went around on missionary journeys. His heart, his passion, his every thought was directed towards the glory of God and the Lord's transformation power was on display in Paul's life. In the book of Ephesians, we find four of the six chapters have personal references to Paul, only strengthening the idea and the understanding that he is the author. Um, the truth of Paul being the author of Ephesians has always been a universally accepted truth until modern times when it seems to be the trend that everyone argues with everything, even solidly placed fact and truth. And so there has been some people that declare, no, he probably wasn't, because there's a slight style difference with the letter to the Ephesians than there is with some of Paul's different writings. But we see that Scripture states that Paul was the author. The early church didn't dispute that Paul was the author. And while maybe there are some style differences in the letter, there is an overall style that is the same. And so we stand and are able to declare that Paul certainly is the author of Ephesians. He wrote the letter to the Ephesians from prison. 
It's an interesting fact that Paul didn't really struggle with the law while he was murdering and persecuting Christians, but as he stood for God in so many places in his life, suddenly everyone wanted to throw him in jail. And so he spent much of his life or many different times of his um, God-honoring life in jail due to serving God. And at this particular time, he is under house arrest in Rome while he writes Ephesians and three other letters, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. During this time in prison, he had time. He had no other distractions other than time to focus on what the Lord had written previously, what the Lord had taught him on his path towards glorifying the Lord, and Paul was able to write it down. And this is where my mind got going with the ultimate shower thoughts of Paul. That could have been the uh, sermon title because Paul had no other distraction and so he had these moments that the Lord was teaching him and he had the ability to write it down. And so it's wonderful that the Lord used Paul in that way. He took a prison sentence or house arrest and the Lord glorified himself as a result of it. The timing of when this all happens is right around... 60 to 62 AD in Rome, and we know this uh, because of a passage in Acts 28. So I didn't provide notes for you today. There's not a lot going on on the screens, but you can jot that down maybe at the very first page of your uh, Bible of Ephesians. You can write down uh, AD 60 or 62 with a cross-reference to Acts 28. And during this time period, Nero was in charge of the Roman Empire. Nero was ruthless and evil and gruesome. Um, He loved to kill people who didn't bow their knees to him as the ruler, and Christians are notorious for not bowing their knee to anyone except God, and so Nero would attack and torture and murder Christians with delight. In fact, their bodies and their body parts were even used to decorate Roman gatherings and the Colosseum and their attacks of Christians against animals or against warriors were used as sport. That is who Nero was and that's the time period that this is being written. And so as a result of that, Christians were scattered They weren't centralized like maybe it seems when we have a letter to the Ephesians. It's like someone, a letter to Calvary, and we would read it on a Sunday because you're all gathered. But at this time, Christians are spread out, they're scattered, and they're not as centralized as maybe we thought. And so now, not only do we know the author, but we know that he wrote it to the Ephesians, so we've identified the audience. But it's a little bit more complex than that because... While we know Paul spent time in Ephesus, we know that from Acts chapter 19, verse 10, he spent about two years in Ephesus knowing uh, the people and the location. This letter actually contains no personal greetings to people that he would have known in Ephesus. His other letters have personal greetings. He lists names. He talks about specific things. This one doesn't have those personal greetings. And in fact, if you look at verse 1 that we read earlier, where it says, in Ephesus, the saints who are in Ephesus, some of the very early manuscripts don't contain the phrase in Ephesus. So it would say, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And this leads some people to believe that this letter wasn't originally meant to a specific group of people. It was a letter that was meant to be circulated to many churches and many people in Asia, which is why 
We know from Nero, Christians were scattered, and so maybe Paul was taking that approach, that he was trying to reach the many different scattered people. And so that also could be why the purpose for why Ephesians was written isn't as clear as maybe some of the other books. If you were to flip over to Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, there is a chance that this letter to the Ephesians was the very letter that was talked about in Colossians 4 when it says this, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. So you understand that there's letters that are happening we see in Colossians 4. We understand from what verse 16 in Colossians 4 says is that it was common to have letters circulating. Read the letter that's coming from Laodicea. That means that letters were normally circulated or some letters were circulated. And so we know that this cyclical style of letter would reach people all over. Going back to maybe they were not all that wrong in saying that it wasn't purposefully addressed to the Ephesians. But again, that is some very small amount of manuscripts. Most of the major manuscripts do contain in Ephesus in verse 1, and all of the manuscripts contain the very top heading that says the letter to the church or the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And so with those things, we just identify the audience as not just Ephesians, but we know that God's word is for all of us to read and to understand, and so the audience is not just the church in Ephesus, it is to all of us. So, A lot of information there. We're going to accept the fact that Scripture tells us in verse 1 that Paul is the author and it was originally addressed to the saints in Ephesus. So what we're going to do for the remainder of the time or much of the remainder of the time is there's going to be a chart that appears on the back wall. Uh, That chart is available on the Church Center app, but when I put it up there this morning, it's hard to read and this may be hard to read as well. Uh, So we'll send it out to you this week so you can have it for the entirety of the study. Uh, This particular chart comes from uh, the Chuck Swindoll Study Bible. And so one thing that I want to do before we fully get into that chart is I want to compare. We mentioned Colossians. We mentioned that Paul wrote 13 letters or 13 books of the New Testament. And so we're going to see that there are some commonalities in Paul's style. But Ephesians and Colossians are very similar. They actually contain 12 similar word or phrase combinations. And if you were to compare Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, and Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, you would actually discover that that is a word-for-word parallel in both books. They are almost, almost identical in our English version. It says this in both of those spots. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. It's a very striking similarity between Colossians and Ephesians. But there's more. Structurally, they have a similar pattern and style of organizing the letter. And they have common themes that are in both of the books. There's key words like body and the church and mystery and head and fullness. These are similarities not because the book was copied. It's not a knockoff one of the other. It's because the author was the same. 
It's because there's variation in its purpose and its, um, and its style a little bit, but the author from letter to letter is going to have some very striking similarities. But there's also differences between the two books so that you don't get caught in the lie that maybe it was just a knockoff or a copy. The reason for writing is different. Colossians was meant to attack doctrinal error in the church, whereas Ephesians has a harder, way, uh, a harder argument for why it was written, but it focuses on doctrinal um, living. It is a deep well of doctrine for us, and it gives us a foundation for believing. It's full of practical application as well. There's differences in how they focus on Christ. Colossians focuses solely on Christ with little mention of the Father and the Holy Spirit, whereas Ephesians focuses on Christ but also connects the other members of the Trinity of the Godhead. And if you take a look here, maybe you can see it. Uh, there's a spot on here that, oh, it's on the very bottom, so you won't be able to see it. So the chart says there, where do we see Christ in Ephesians? It says that Jesus is the sort of source of every spiritual blessing, the cornerstone of the church and the standard of spiritual maturity. So we're going to draw that out as we study the book of Ephesians. But it's different from Colossians in its scope as well. Colossians focuses more on the individual, whereas Ephesians is focusing more on the universal church and their relationship with Christ. Colossians has more feel of personal greeting and style, whereas Ephesians is more impersonal. And Colossians, if you were to read it, is more of an argument and it feels more militant, whereas Ephesians feels more like a sermon or a prayer. And so you might go, wait, I thought we were studying Ephesians. Why do you keep talking about Colossians? Well, for me at least, it's fun to study Scripture to see its commonality between books but also its differences. And the reason that's fun for me is because when we recognize these similarities and these differences, we see the diversity of God. We don't read Scripture just to be better at reading. We read Scripture to draw us closer to God and to give us a bigger understanding. And so when I see that different books have, different, uh, similar, has, have similarities and differences, I see the diversity of God and it helps me see how deep He is and how unique He is. But it also see, helps me see how sinful man is. We need a lot of direction and guidance and instruction. So much so that there are 66 different books that God uses to teach us and to guide us and to break us out of our normal habits to draw attention to him for his glory. And not only 66 books of the Bible, but he gives us his Holy Spirit. And so the reason I'm comparing Colossians and Ephesians is to show me and to remind all of us that, wow, we need help. <laughs> we need God's word and we need his guidance but I also wanted you to see that because it's very common for people to try to discredit Scripture. People nowadays and for a long time have always said that Scripture is either copied or falsified or damaged or it's a story that somebody made up. And so part of our faith is knowing that God wrote his word and he didn't make a mistake we need to understand that while these two letters that I mentioned specifically this morning are similar, they are unique and they are both God-given. They're not fabricated. They are not copied. And so, let's look at the structure 
of the book of Ephesians. As you can see on this chart, we have, uh, we have a column over here on your left and one on the right. And if you can read this, it says introduction right here. And over here on the right, it says conclusion. The introduction verses we read this morning, the conclusion verses, verses are obviously at the very end of the book. But between this and this, we have two very distinct columns each with their own theme. But before we get into how that breaks down, let's talk about the overall theme of Ephesians. The overall theme of Ephesians is who we are in Christ, who and what is the church, and how do we live that truth out. The chart says it as this, the holy community God is creating and how it is to live out its calling. So that involves all of us. The holy community that God is creating, his church. And now, if we know and identify that we are part of that, how are we living it out? That is the theme of Ephesians. There are a few key verses from the overall book of Ephesians. You'll find it in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, where it says this, "...making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth." There's one more key section in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those are the two passages that really give you an understanding of the entire book of Ephesians. The goal and the purpose of me going through all of this background and everything is so that as we read, we get a better picture of how all of this is structured and what is the main intent that we're working towards. So, like I said earlier, while it may not have this um, heart-pounding eruption of excitement at the end of the sermon, you are going to be better equipped to understand the study moving forward. And so, like I said, we'll send out this chart, and hopefully you're scratching down in your, in your notes or in your scripture some of these key verses. But that's the overall key verses. You'll notice here, this column it has its heading that says Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, through Ephesians chapter 3, 21. That is the first main section of how Ephesians breaks down. You'll notice in my sermon title, I called it the gospel and how it shapes us. That's because the gospel is highlighted in chapters 1 through 3. How it shapes us is highlighted in chapters 4 through 6. So if you're wondering what we're going to do and how we're going to go about studying this, our first three chapters are just going to go over and over and over the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its intention and its implication for those people that choose Jesus as their Savior. And then what do we do with that understanding of the gospel? Chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians are going to teach how it shapes us. If you were to look on this chart, you will see that he, uh, Chuck Swindoll, titles this chapters 1 through 3 are our position in Christ and chapters 4 through 6 our practice on earth, the practical application of who we are. Um, it's the more doctrinal section, chapters 1 through 3, talking about what God has done for us, what Christ has done in us, what Christ has done between us as people. It's going to deal with things like God's sovereignty, God's grace, reconciliation. It's going to talk about unity in Christ, our position, unity in Christ, and our relationship with God. 
The key verse from this particular section is found in verse 4, where you see right here, God loved us and chose us in Christ. If you're not refreshed by anything else today other than that, take that home with you, verse 4 of chapter 1. Who are you? You are loved by God, and in Christ he chose you. That is the key verse of that first section, chapters 1 through 3. Excuse me. Chapters 4 through 6 is the next section, like I said, how it shapes us, or on the chart, our practice on earth. It's going to be the more practical section. It's going to talk about unity. It's going to talk about the new walk that we have, the new strength that we discover as followers of Christ. It's going to be geared towards how do we live out our Christ-likeness. Like I said at the very beginning, it's one thing to know something, to have this idea and this thought and this understanding. It's another thing to write it down or to do something with that information. And so we have to walk out, live out our Christ-likeness. And it's going to deal with our relationship with others. Chapters 4 through 6 will. The key verse from this particular section is found in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So I'm not the one that made the breakdown of these chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. You can see from the key verses that chapter 4, verse 1 starts by saying, how are you going to live? How are you going to flesh this out? This whole understanding that you have of who God is, who Jesus Christ is to you, your new identity in Christ, you can hold on to that all you want, but you have to walk it. You have to live it. If that's who you are, then you have to put action to it, and chapters 4 through 6 are going to teach us that. There's also another theme that is woven uh, equally throughout the book, and that's a theme on prayer. We're going to see in chapter 1 that Paul prays for the Ephesians. In chapter 3, Paul prays for the whole church. In chapter 6, we're going to see Christians that are praying for one another, and so we're also going to tackle a few thoughts on prayer. But one thing that binds both of these sections together is not the title of the book being Ephesians, but it's unity. Unity ties all of that together because the first three chapters deal with our unity in Christ and the second three tell us how we can bring that unity in Christ into our relationships with one another and within the church and then show the world the power of the unity that we have in Christ. And the reason for that plea for unity is because God has given us something great in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That is unity with Almighty God. But he's also given us something great within the church, the universal church, but also this local church, where there is something that is more powerful than the bickering and the arguing and the preferences and the people that frustrate us. There is something that is greater that will always overpower that if we allow the Lord to transform our lives, to transform our living, so that the unity with him is displayed in unity with one another, and that is that term, unity. That binds both chapters together, but it overwhelms everything that we want to put in place to get in the way. God is more powerful than that. And it's the unity that ties both of this together and all of us. And so in my time, in my thoughts, for my own guidance in my own personal life, but also for the guidance of this church, that's why I thought we should study this letter. I think that there is great depth. There is a well of information that is just waiting for us to discover. And so as I end here today, like I said, there's no powerful point. I want to just share from my heart the four reasons why I think 
we are going to benefit as a church and as, indiv as individuals from this study. Why should we study this for Calvary? Well, Samuel Taylor Cooleridge says that Ephesians is the divinest composition of man. He actually calls it the queen of the epistles. And Dr. John McKay says the greatest, the maturest, and for our time, the most relevant of all of Paul's works. It is the distilled essence of Christianity. So the very first reason that I believe we are going to benefit from this study is because as a result of it, we are going to grow in our understanding of God's grace. In verse 2 that we read, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God. Don't we need to grow in grace? Don't we need to stand out in this world of chaos, overwhelmed with a peace that makes no sense to people, but it draws them closer to God because they wonder, how can you be at peace? How can you have such a well of grace about you? In all of your dealings, you are always at peace. You are always filled with grace. It's because of Jesus Christ. And the book of Ephesians will show us that. And so we need to understand that that's one of the reasons why this study is beneficial for us. Because when we grow in our understanding of God's grace, we're going to display it. It's not like just a note that's jotted down in the side of our Bible or the idea that comes to us when we have no way to write it down and so we forget it. As we grow in our understanding of God's grace, we will display it in our lives and it will be more on display in this church. And I believe that by studying Ephesians, we're going to grow in our understanding of God's grace. I also believe that we will display, like I mentioned, we will display God's grace in the church. Clint Darst says this, What a joy it is when our churches are full of people who stagger at the abundant grace they have personally experienced in their own conversion to Christ. You see, in chapters 1 through 3, we're going to talk about the gospel and be overwhelmed with the reality of what God did for us in his glorious grace by sending us Jesus Christ, our Savior. And as we understand that deeply and we move into how that penetrates our hearts and our actions, we're going to display that grace as a church more than we ever have. By God's grace, we are united to God and to one another with the great canvas of this church and our relationships to display his beautiful artwork of grace. Chapter 4, verse 7 says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so if we know that grace was given to us, then we have to display it. We have to know it deeply, we have to walk it out, and we have to display it. And so I believe that by studying Ephesians, we will display God's grace more than we ever have before as a church. And what a joy our church will be not only for each other, but for people we invite and in our community. The third reason I believe that this Ephesians study will be so beneficial for us is because it will challenge us to pursue personal holiness. You see, our gospel activity, our daily lives, and how we live out our Christ-likeness flows out of our gospel identity, which is why Ephesians was... was uh, Structured this way is the word I'm looking for. The gospel produces action. It produces something. So the deeper that we go in our studies, the deeper that we understand the doctrine and the theology of what God did for us and who he is, the more it will shape us, the more we will look like Christ in our everyday lives. You see, God's transforming grace produces things like honesty, control of anger, 
integrity, generosity, pureness of speech, forgiveness, sexual purity, discernment, wise living. It takes you from acting like a child, like you once were, but now being transformed and showing power and wisdom and strength for God's glory. In fact, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 14 and 15, it says this, so that we may no longer be children, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so as a church, while I don't believe that we are children, acting like children, we always have a work that God can do in our lives. And so part of this process is that each one of us is committed to pursuing personal holiness. What a life that's going to be pleasing to the Lord if we walk in that manner. And what a church if we display this activity. And more than just this church, we talked earlier about how Christians in the time of Nero were scattered we as a church, once we leave this place, are to scatter into a world that is dark and hopeless and we carry with us a message of light and hope. We can't be quiet about it. And so when we scatter from this place, we will display the transforming power of God's grace to a world that needs it and we'll do it more than ever before because as a result of studying Ephesians, I believe we are going to grow in personal holiness. And the final reason is that I believe a study of Ephesians will transform relationships. If we understand God's grace, then we understand unity in Christ. And church is not just a place where individuals focus on personal holiness, but interpersonal relationships. If you aren't working on relationships in the church, then the application of the gospel is incomplete in your life. Yes, you heard that. It's incomplete in your life if you aren't intentionally trying to grow relationships, if you aren't intentionally going to people that hurt you and seeking unity, seeking harmony. If we know the gospel and we know what Jesus Christ did, to, did for us so that we have unity with the Father even though we were born worthy of his wrath, how can we not take that truth let it penetrate relationships. So the gospel message is going to transform relationships because relationships in the, tr in the church are supposed to lead to love. They're supposed to be filled with truth. They're even supposed to be submission to one another because of our reverence for Christ. So at the end of Ephesians, we're going to see that marriages are tackled. Children, you're going to have a portion that's addressed to you we're going to see as an employee or an employer that those relationships have biblical implications. And if we study them and we're content with where we are and we don't do anything with that study, then nothing is going to change. But I believe in this place we have people who are going to be committed to personal holiness. We're going to see the importance of allowing the transforming power of Jesus Christ to penetrate everything even difficult relationships, and so we're going to see marriages stronger. We're going to see parenting take a gospel-powered effect. We're going to see people be better at their jobs and work harder for the glory of God. In fact, we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, so we will remember that we are called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
You see that Ephesians teaches us about relationships? We're going to see transformed relationships as a result of this study, not just in this church, but in your families, in your coworkers, and any other relationship you might have. So those are the four reasons why I, as your pastor, believe that this is going to be a wonderful study for us. But in order to make this study wonderful, there's two things that we need to have happen. We need to have each one of us, our hearts geared towards what the Lord is going to teach us. We need to be prepared that when we open our hearts to what God has to teach us, he will step on our toes. We can't get in his way, and so I ask one really important thing from you. Be ready to be in unity with Christ. Put aside the things that maybe you prefer. Put aside the things that you want to hold on to because you want to just add Jesus to your life so you can have comfort and you can have fun where you want to have fun. As a precursor to this study, would you submit your life fully to Christ in everything and every way that he wants to teach you? And then the second thing that I ask of you, would you open God's word? This study will not be effective if you just come on a Sunday morning and hope to glean some information from the couple verses that I will read for you. And so I'm asking a big commitment here. I believe that in order to best effectively have this study transform lives in this place and transform this church, which then in turn can transform this community and can touch places in the world and be transformed because of the power of God, we need to read Ephesians a lot. So my challenge to you is that once a week you read the whole book of Ephesians until we're done with Ephesians. There's six chapters. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes to read it. You can do it all at once, or you can do a chapter a day and have the seventh day of the week off. But I want you, Calvary, to read the entire book of Ephesians once a week until we're done studying it. And I believe that if you are committed to do that, that by the end of the six chapters, by the end of this study, you are going to be able to read it every week without having to really struggle to understand what it means. You're actually going to be able to think your way through the book of Ephesians without even reading it. You're going to think the way that God thinks because you'll be familiar with his words. You see, as you read this over and over and over again for the duration of this study, the decisions and the thoughts that you have will be filtered through the truths of Ephesians. The problems that you face will be in perspective because of his power that you are now more familiar with than you ever have before. And the goal is that this letter is not just going to be written on the pages of the Bible in front of you. It's going to be written on your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to understand some background on your word. But Lord, thank you through the studious portion of this day that you still reveal yourself. That you remind us about things like who we are in Christ. And that I can't just have this truth about my identity of being united with God Almighty because of Jesus and then do nothing with it. I thank you for the challenge even this morning of how Ephesians is structured to show us what the gospel really is and how we're supposed to respond to it. And so, Lord, for me, thank you for the reminder of Jesus Christ, my Savior. Thank you for the reminder that you love us, that you chose us, 
and that you don't give up on us because you gave us your word and you give us your Holy Spirit. And I pray today that this place would see and understand that truth and would take the challenges in front of us to be open-hearted to what you are going to teach us. That we would take the challenge of reading Ephesians every single week all the way until July or June or whenever we finish so that we are committed followers of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your continued guidance and your love for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.